0: Welcome to SongCraft. I'm Paul Duncan.
1: And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to the Eagles recording of The Best of My Love, co-written by Don Henley, Glenn Frey, and our guest on this episode of SongCraft, J.D. Souther. J.D. Souther is perhaps best known for writing or co-writing 10 songs recorded by the Eagles, including Victim of Love, The Sad Cafe, How Long, and the number one hits Best of My Love, New Kid in Town, and Heartache Tonight. Another 10 of his songs were recorded by Linda Ronstadt, among them Faithless Love, Prisoner in Disguise, and Simple Man, Simple Dream. The list of other artists who have drawn from the J.D. Souther songbook includes Bonnie Raitt, Rod Stewart, Conway Twitty, Glenn Campbell, George Strait, Trisha Yearwood, Tom Jones, Roy Orbison, Raul Mallow, Michael Buble, India R.E., and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Additionally, JD co-wrote three songs with Don Henley on his End of the Innocence album including Heart of the Matter, and found success with the Dixie Chicks cover of his I'll Take Care of You. As an artist, JD launched his career with the group Long Branch Penny Whistle, which he founded with future eagle Glenn Frey. Soon after, he co-founded the Souther Hillman-Fure band with Chris Hillman of the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers and Richie Fure of Buffalo Springfield and Poco. In total, JD has released seven solo studio albums between 1972 and 2015 and landed two top ten hits as a recording artist with You're Only Lonely and the James Taylor duet Her Town 2. A quick technical note, some of you sharp-eared listeners might pick up on a shift in the audio midway through the interview with JD. Due to unforeseen issues, we had to move the conversation from Zoom to telephone, which is not a big deal, but just letting you know in case you happen to notice. Part one. Well, Scott, here
0: we are in 2024. Unbelievable. The first episode of the new year. Um, And, you know, we've been talking about this for a while. Um, The listeners don't know this. But I think the new year is the time to reveal it that we um we're turning the show over to some new hosts, um and not artificial intelligence hosts or anything like that, but no. um my children, um ages eight and five, right. <laughs> I think are ready to take over the podcast. Um
1: yeah, uh yeah. and you know given that we are recording this during the uh, holiday break when they're out of school, they're taking over the podcast whether we let them or not. So. Yeah. Uh, I think best to just lean into it.
0: Yeah. So, um, listeners, this is your first taste of what <laughs> Songcraft will sound like with your new hosts. Um, we welcome feedback uh, Actually, at the same time, though. This, be kind. <laughs> um, this is just how it's going to be, though, uh, from now on. We, we've had a good run with me and Scott, and now um, we bring you Elliot
1: and Edison. Elliot, how old are you? I'm eight. Okay, Edison, how old are you?
2: Five.
1: All right. Well, you guys are definitely the youngest guests we've ever had on the show. Um, so, what do we? Do you guys know what? Do you guys know the name of this show?
2: Uh, yeah, you just said it, Songcraft.
1: You <laughs> see, you're a senior, good. You're a good listener. Um, Eddie, what what is this show about? Do you know?
2: Um, it's about where um the grownups tell the kids. Um, like questions and they have to answer it.
1: <laughs> Today, that is what it's about. Yes. Do you know what it's about? Other times, do you know what kind of people we talk to normally? No. Okay, Elliot. Who do we talk to?
2: Like one time, they t- talked to Paul Stanley. Check that out. And um, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for the plug. And they um, talk about stuff that they've done in their past, like their music past. Uh huh.
1: So what's the what is the job of the people who come on our show? Like why do we have them on?
2: Oh, a songwriter. Yeah, yep. yeah.
1: Yep. So, Eddie, who's your favorite songwriter?
2: Um, my dad.
1: That's a good answer. You're pretty young, so I'm gonna guess you guys have never been to any concerts.
2: Oh come on! I've been to like ten. Really? Yes.
1: What have you? What concerts have you been to?
2: I've been to Elton John, Metallica, Paul McCartney, uh, Taylor Swift. Wait, which other ones have we gone to? Uh, Harry Styles. Styles. Yeah. And what else have we gone? to?
0: I took you guys to see a Kiss tribute band.
2: Oh yeah, Kiss. <laughs> that's,
1: that's big. Eddie, you've been to some concerts with us too, right? No, there's no way Eddie's been to a concert. Yeah, I have. No, you're too young. There's I no way. I went to the
2: car uh, a Elvis. Car? You went to an
1: Elvis <laughs> concert. I don't think we made it to an Elvis show, but we did go to Paul McCartney.
0: Paul, Paul McCartney. McCartney.
1: Yeah. I, you got to go see Paul McCartney. How old were you when that happened? This age. Well, how old is this age? Five, five. You were so you five years old. You got to go see. She was four. Okay, so <laughs> four years old, you got to go see Paul five McCartney. Five. Okay. <laughs> no, she wasn't. So, what? What's your favorite Paul McCartney song? Too
2: many people no. my favorite Paul McCartney. Oh, that's a no, deep cut. Won't.
1: Have you been to any other concerts besides Paul McCartney?
2: Elvis. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> we've, we've not been to an Elvis show. I, I hey, guess what? What? When I was a baby. And I was still in my mommy's tummy. Ew. Yeah, right? You said enough.
2: TMI, TMI.
1: <laughs> when I was a baby, I went to an Elvis concert oh my God. before I was born. But I was inside and you think I heard it? TMI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sound can make it through human tissue. No. <laughs> Stop. That's enough. But it
2: doesn't make it into the womb.
0: So um, one of the things that we were talking about a moment ago, and um, we'll let the listeners hear this, is that we like to go together and uh, go to record stores, which not a lot of young people are doing these days. That's so right. A lot of people are getting their music off Apple Music or Spotify, but but we're we're going to record stores. Part of it is because I, I want you guys to have that experience. Do you guys enjoy that?
2: Yes. yes. And one of our favorites to go there is Record Recycler.
0: Record Recycler in Torrance, California. We we'll get a little shout out for them. You know, maybe we'll get maybe we'll get some free stuff now. If we
1: <laughs> I
2: like it because you could get bobbleheads.
1: I see that. How do you decide when you go to the record store? How do you decide what to get?
2: Sometimes I just look at the covers of the album and yeah. I just think, "Oh, this might be interesting," huh. so I take it.
1: That's how we used to discover That's music exactly back in how the day. We used to discover music, yeah. So, what's one that you picked out that you thought you liked the cover, and and then you actually liked the music too? Um,
2: there's this one um diana ross or something yeah yep. and i yeah, didn't diana know ross. who it was i picked it i was like that looks cool i'm gonna try it out and i really liked it
1: you liked it. it what is this eddie is this one that you picked out
2: yes i like it because of our boobies
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right so this album is called heaven what's the name of the what's the name of the <laughs> that's album there, why, elliot? that's why i bought records in the <laughs> <laughs> back in junior so what high is and... what's the name of the album elliot it's heaven's the band right yes and, and what's the name this? of the band. Name of the album's what? Knocking on Heaven's Door. Okay, so Knocking on Heaven's Door by a band called Heaven. There is a woman on the cover. You can probably uh, Google this. And what I I see that there's, Elliot's holding another one here called A Winter's Solstice by Wyndham Hill artists. And it has a very different non boopy vibe. So wait, Eddie, you picked Heaven and the Wyndham, so those are the two that you chose. Those are two very different covers. What was it about the Wyndham Hill one you liked? You liked Um, the tree?
2: No, I just like calm music.
1: Calm music. Okay. Do you guys ever get in trouble for bothering your dad when he's working? Yeah.
2: Never. That's not <laughs> true,
1: are Let me guess. You're so well behaved, you never get in trouble. Is that right? Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> what
1: an angel you are.
2: She, she's getting in trouble for not saying the cheering. Right
1: That's true. She's been in trouble in
0: this very interview. <laughs> That's a good point. So, if you guys were gonna write a song right now, oh shoot! You don't have, you don't have to do it. <laughs> what would you write a song
1: about?
2: About
1: a boy in love with a girl. <laughs> a boy in love with a girl? What's the name of this boy? Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Romeo. Is this boy in your kindergarten class by chance? <laughs> no. No? So you guys are into music like Taylor Swift
0: and Harry Styles and Dua Lipa and, you know, the stuff that the kids are listening to. But I yes. think the people might also be interested to know, and a lot of it's because your, your dad's, you know, was a little pushy with this stuff, but <laughs> you have become fans of older music as well. Yes. There's a lot of stuff. I know the Beatles are something that that you guys listen to. And even some of the deep cuts. Like, we were listening to um, a song called I'm Looking Through You the other day. Remember that one? I'm Um,
2: looking through you.
0: Where did you go? Yeah. You guys really seem to like that one. Which is fun. It's fun to have you guys... What what do you like about the Beatles?
2: They make funny songs.
0: (laughs) They have
1: some funny songs. They have some funny songs. Octopus's Garden, you know that one?
0: Yeah. Rocky Raccoon.
2: I also like how they... Like, sing and how they are just like happy while they're singing. I'm looking through the, you. I am yeah, a walrus. I
0: yeah, I mean, that's I'm a great looking one.
2: Looking through. Wait, no. I am a walrus. Choo choo choo. Yes,
1: that would too. Okay, so what do you guys think makes a song good versus not good?
2: Uh, I think that what makes it good is that you've tried your best to make that song.
1: I like that answer.
2: And if you didn't try to do your best or practice, you wouldn't be so good because you wouldn't even know what to sing. Hmm, I agree with Edison because like, what if you turn out on the concert and you forget all the words because you didn't practice and you didn't know what the song was? Hmm.
0: That's a good answer. The effort and training that goes into making and creating and performing the music is
1: something that matters to you. Yeah, you can't just be like, oh, I'm gonna do this and not actually work at it. Yeah. And also they need a good voice to impress me.
2: <laughs>
0: a good voice to impress you.
1: Are you hard to impress? Yes. Oh, okay. High like, standards.
2: I don't like Tom Petty.
1: Oh well that's fighting words.
0: Yeah, we and we've had these conversations. <laughs> we we uh we played Bob Dylan in the car the other day. Yeah,
2: I don't like Bob Dylan. <laughs> I know you're listening, Bob Dylan. Yes you are.
0: <laughs> if well, Bob Dylan is listening to our podcast and just heard that, then we're done. That's like... <laughs> Who's Bob Dylan?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're throwing shade. You know who Bob Dylan is. You're just trying to act like you don't even care. I don't
2: who Bob Dylan is? <laughs> He's a songwriter, not nah, he sucks.
1: Okay. Well, Do you guys know so, Bob
2: Dylan? Have you ever <laughs> met him?
1: <laughs> I don't think we're going to now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, you know, since we're kind of wrapping up our time together here, um, I'd like to know if you have anything. Now that you've got you've got the ear of the people, and this is a crowd that likes music, right? That you're speaking to. If you had anything to say to them, any maybe a recommendation of something they should check out. Or something, um, you know, maybe a bit of encouragement. What, what would you like to leave the people with um, before you go, Edison? I'm gonna let you go first since you seem to have something.
2: Uh, I don't know. I was just, a, I was just going to say, can I go to the dollar store soon?
0: <laughs> can you go to the dollar store soon? So this is what we'd like to offer the people.
2: Because I have money.
1: You have money. Are you yeah. gonna buy me a present? Myself a
2: present. Oh
1: dang.
0: Okay, so we're leaving the people with that. That's good for you, Edison. Okay, Elliot, what would you like to say to the people?
2: I just want to say, check out more um, uh, episodes from Songcraft. I
1: like Amazing. that. Amazing. I think that's. Uh, I think it's a good place to leave it. Check out more episodes from Songcraft.
2: And please hear our song soon.
1: And please hear our song soon.
2: What episode? Hello.
1: I am waiting to hear your song. About going to the dollar store with your boyfriend.
2: <laughs> I don't have a boyfriend. Are they gone?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you have some cute kids. Yes, I, yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, thank and it's, you. And they are a lot of fun for yes. a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> thank
0: you for indulging uh, <laughs> indulging that. And um, I, hopefully, we got enough of the chair moving around, <laughs> mic stand kicking, you know well face bonking part noises of the that whole that pa-
1: part of the whole aesthetic is just sort of the general chaos I think, true
0: around whatever's happening it's so. absolutely an aesthetic uh, it, it was a holiday aesthetic <laughs> for us and um, again yeah this is our new hosts so, <laughs> so let's yeah. hope hope you're into
1: it uh well i've made an executive decision to fire the new host i think you and i should <laughs> could sh- we'll stick with it for another year at least we'll stick uh, with it for a while maybe we'll hand it over to him next year uh you know or, or at least when elliot's double digits maybe that's the time yeah. to reconnect consider. Um, this is exciting because we have been wanting to have J.D. Souther on the show for a while.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's just one of those names that just as far as respected songwriters, J.D. Yeah. Souther, his name comes up again and again and yep. again. And I think he was on our early wish list. Yeah. He's been like
1: on the to. wish list for, for many years and was a little bit elusive. We were trying yeah. to track down, find like the right uh, contact. And um, so thanks to... Couple different people that I know they were working the angles From from different sides and, uh, and It actually came together which is Great and you know I'll tell you um, I've Heard and read Several interviews with J.D. Souther And he Does not typically expound Much on some of those classic Eagle Songs yeah. um, that You know people want to know about and I think Understandably For a guy who's writing songs um, You know 30, 40, 50 years ago, but still writing songs today. There's kind of a... Yeah, I know you want to hear about the songs from the past, but... You know, I am also still writing. Right. And I think what happens is probably in these type of interviews that people just sort of just go right for all the old stuff and they yeah. never say like, well, has anything else happened in the last 40 <laughs> years, you know? Right. Um, and he's done some really interesting stuff and he's done Absolutely. some stuff that's sort of outside the box of what you might expect if you only know his kind of, you know, seventies era, uh, material. So, um, we kind of just started out with that. and. Yeah. What's interesting is I felt like he was really starting to kind of open up and tell more stories. And I've heard him tell about some of the Eagles songs uh, without us really even like prodding him about it. And maybe that's because uh, it's like, hey, yeah, just let it unfold. Like, yeah. Let me let me talk about some of the old stuff, but I, I want to talk about the new stuff, too. And um, I think the way to, you know, really talk to people about their art is to say, like, well, let's not carve out a tiny piece of your art and talk about that let's talk about the whole arc of what you've done you know with your career um and it made for a really interesting conversation and i don't want to like toot our horns but (laughs) i think this is one of the best jd souther interviews i've heard honestly
0: yeah i I, you know we don't have to toot our own horns but we can say that a lot of times interviewers don't want to go for the whole picture yeah and they just go for the low-hanging fruit and i want all the fruit <laughs> right. I want the whole bowl right. I
1: would give me give me all the give fruit. me the fruit and one last final piece of housekeeping before we jump into this interview if you listen to our previous episode which was our Stacks Christmas episode we said uh, hey you guys send us an email let us know why you should have a copy of the Stacks Christmas compilation on vinyl and we got some great answers and it was hard picking one but uh, ultimately we did choose our winner I don't know if he wants his full name read but we'll just say Brian we'll just his, do it we'll, we'll, I don't know <laughs> he wants it, here's his address. Here's his address. Yeah. Uh, so this is Brian, a listener in uh, Michigan. He was the winner and has uh, hopefully by now received his copy of the Stacks Christmas LP in the mail. We've um, geolocated.
0: I'm actually watching him open it. Yep.
1: <laughs> so uh, he has written an original uh, lyric to the tune of Jingle Bells, which says, "Dashing through the snow, I listen to your show. I love my Christmas songs. I listen all season long." I would love the prize. It would be just my size. Please send it to me to put under my tree. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it would be to win the vinyl, I would say so that's it's pretty creative. Good. so it's pretty you good. know we 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 love the creativity so uh, and he also adds at the end he says p.s christmas music is my favorite music genre i have about two dozen christmas vinyl records i also have over 2500 christmas songs in itunes so this wow. guy is a christmas music fan so he says he has two dozen christmas vinyl records he now has a baker's uh two dozen <laughs> vinyl christmas records because he's got one more and uh so congrats brian hope you have received that brian uh, i bet
0: you are a lot of fun and into- December.
1: <laughs> yes, I,
0: I'm not sure about a road trip with you in July.
1: <laughs> but well, you know they say Christmas let's hang in July. out in December. <laughs> right. So, uh, congrats, Brian. Thanks to yep. everybody else who wrote in and and uh, for listening. And we appreciate you guys. And uh, let's let's hear from JD Salter.
2: If you need a quality recording of a song you've written, take it from my dad. Pearl Snap Studios is a place to go for all of your needs. Justin and his team will take care of you, and you won't be sorry you called them. So don't be ridiculous. Go to PearlSnapStudios.com and tell them that Songcraft sent you.
1: Part 2. JD, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thank you very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Paul and I are from um, Nashville originally. So, you know, we kind of made that that move from Nashville to L.A. And at one point, you kind of went the other way. And and I know you lived in Nashville for a while. And just thinking about, you know, they're kind of sister cities, I think, for musicians. Oh, very
3: much so, yeah. You know, I lived in L.A. for 30 years and then moved to Nashville and lived on a farm there for 20 years when I was married and raising my kid.
1: Yeah. I mean, you very much came from like a obviously a very specific music community in LA and Nashville has its own specific music community, but it's not really the same thing. It's not the same vibe. I mean, Nashville is kind of a right by appointment kind of town. It's a company town, man. Yeah. It may not be the Peabody coal company, but it's a
3: company town.
1: Yeah. Oh, how was that for you? Just making that transition to a, a that different environment? Uh, strange because I think probably when I
3: moved there, I thought, well, what the hell, I've never really gotten anything great out of it, but we'll try this writing by appointment with people you don't know. And I, I never got anything good. Two good songs maybe in the first five years of trying it. And then I just, I was so lonesome for music that I really liked that I started going out and, and finding jazz guys. And then it, it, it occurred to me, I had, i have been writing stuff that was leaning towards that. And so I put together this little uh, quintet, And then while we were rehearsing, we used to rehearse in my barn, and then we'd go play like an early show at the basement. And, you know, Grimey would let us come in and just basically rehearse the album there. So we'd come in and play the same set every Friday night. Then we'd go back out to the barn, work on the charts a little bit. And then one night we were in there and Jeff Coffin showed up. And I went, wow, you wouldn't happen to have your saxophone in the car, would you? And he says, I'd never come to see you without my saxophone. So I went and got a saxophone. We played two songs and I said, You want to be in the band? And he went, You betcha.
1: So (laughs) nice.
3: I had just I had the best jazz players in Nashville, and that's when then we made If the World Was You.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. You you talk about that album and a song like I'll Be Here at Closing Time, which is um, such a great melody and such a great lyric and, and such a great marriage between the two. Thank you When you um, did your Natural History record Which was only like Two or three years after that And that was a lot of yeah. Like reworkings of some of your favorite songs But you included that song on You know, on that record as well So you, you, you put it out twice In a relatively short amount of time Well oh, I like the way you bring the water With your
4: fingers on the line when you walk there Kills me, I'll be here at closing time. Is that a ring there on your finger? Or just a thin fading line you could walk away
5: from me, don't do it. I'll
1: be here. Obviously that's kind of a special song for you And it's a great song I'd love to just hear more about it Well, it's actually it's
3: actually a true song I, I wrote it uh, because of a, a really cute waitress In Nashville named Cheryl Who just had the greatest walk I'd ever seen hmm. And she would always, when I'd sit down She'd bring me water with her finger hooked over the line And I, I just watched her walk away from me one night And I thought, there's a whole song I can see a whole, I can write the whole future of this couple based on these three minutes or four minutes. And I also think if somebody cuts the right record of it, I think it's a hit song. Hmm. It doesn't have to have that kind of solo, and it doesn't have to have the bridge twice, and it certainly doesn't have to have that little intro that... Actually, uh, Rod McGaha made that up. That was a horn part on the first record. I just do it on the guitar now. Yeah. But the real reason I did it again, I just wanted to be heard. We had such an abysmal experience with the release of If the World Was You, we had an investor in Texas who had promised us a quarter of a million dollars to sell it. And uh, the closer it got to the uh, election and the more it looked like Obama was going to win, this guy just backed into this weird, racist, spooky alt-right corner and uh, changed all of his numbers and his email. And I finally found an old cell phone of his and I called him and it just had a message on his machine that said, leave a message. Unless you're a liberal, jeez. <laughs> I just thought, okay, there went the money. <laughs> yeah, 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 jeez. So we put it out on our own with no distribution and no no real help. It it just died a ignominious death.
0: Yeah, talking about that album. If the world was you, um, you know, as a sports fan, I remember watching a, a a masterful athlete like Michael Jordan. Sometimes, kind of challenge himself in a game. He would shoot a free throw with his eyes closed, kind of just to see if he could do it. I think the game was just that yeah. easy to him. I look at a song like Journey Down the Nile, and I look at all the different ways that you did that aisle rhyme, yeah. you know, with with <laughs> Nile and and in ways that I never would have thought, you know, no, what is it, no psychiatric folder yet on file. And and I see honestly, I see somebody just almost like throwing out a challenge to yourself. Can I do this? And then doing it in a narrative way that actually tells the story. I mean, I, I love how you work the rhymes into that song. Thank you.
3: And you're right. The whole album was like a challenge. I had always wanted to do two things that I have not yet done. One is make a big band album because that's what I did in school. I was a jazz kid. I played drums in a big band and wrote charts for the big band. I never even touched a guitar until I was 22 or 23. never had any interest in it. Wow. And I always wanted to do a small group jazz album. And I just, as these songs began to sort of shape themselves that way and then I had a couple of poems that were just really just beat poems, like uh, the last one, The Secret Handshake of Faith. Yeah. That wasn't a song until we played it. Wow. It was a poem, and we had finished for the night, and everybody was just hanging out and listening. And I said, hey, guys, just like, g- give me a second. I sat down on the piano bench and wrote the last verse, and I said, just, just go with me. And I tuned the guitar to that sick tuning, whatever that acoustic tuning is. And, you know, they, it's... They're jazz guys. They listen. So I started playing. They started following, and we got all the way through the song once. And I thought, well, it really sounds tight now. So we just went through it again, and then when we're listening back, it's got 13 minutes or something. And <laughs> one of the Nashville uh squarehead producers walked in and went, "That's amazing, man! When you you get that cut down to three or four minutes, you're gonna have something great." <laughs> and I said, "Get him out of here." You know? And then Jeff Coffin sat down beside me, and we listened to the whole thing back again in 13 minutes, and. As great as a musician Jeff Coffin is and as many great people as he's played with, he just sat back on his chair and he said, man, that's why we make music.
4: Go off this marble Leave something here There's somebody else but you Oh, it's a pity Most folks don't
1: talk about jazz and and how that you know goes back to your earliest music before you were playing guitar and I also you know I listened to uh your 2015 album tenderness and you know songs like come what may or this house they have these very pretty melodies but also these intricate string arrangements and and it kind of you know harkens back to like Nelson Riddle and these like classic uh, string arrangers, you know, and and so I, 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 it's clear that that type of music was also um, a real influence on you. Talk a bit about that. Well,
3: you know, it's what I grew up listening to. My father was a big band singer when I was born. My even though we moved to Texas when I was well, almost six, like we first I was born in Detroit, and we lived in Cleveland, in Shaker Heights for a while. Then we moved to Dallas while my mother had my first of my little sisters then we moved to amarillo and so i was in amarillo from six until i quit college at 22 or whatever 21. and uh my parents hated country music so i just never heard it at home i heard opera because my dad's mother was an opera singer beautiful mezzo soprano and uh and actually both of her parents were gilbert and sullivan stars so my dad's whole side of the family is very musical and uh, that's just the music I heard. My mother loved musicals. We all loved the, the Rodgers and Hart and Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. My father and I were huge fans of all the standard writers, Cole Porter, Gershwin, Berlin. You know, Johnny Mercer, especially the guy who wrote Dream and started the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Yeah. And Huggy Carmichael and all those. And right on down through the modern guys, I mean... Thank goodness! Before he died, Bert Backrack and I finally wrote a couple of songs. Oh wow! Oh wow! That kind of music just always appealed to me. I never liked the Broadway shows because I don't like that kind of stand on the front of the stage and scream kind of <laughs> singing. <laughs> right. But uh, I think what the I think what the jazz guys have always done with those standards has just been incredible. You know, I could listen to the entire Rodgers and Hammerstein catalog if Bill Evans is playing it.
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I heard you say that you originally wanted to call that tenderness album LA Stories. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people who sort of know you as one of the architects of what we would call the California sound might expect you to have used that sort of california sound that you've become known for but you didn't you you know you went back for something more classic and anybody who knows the history of la understands that it didn't start in the 70s with laura canyon i mean go exactly. watch a movie like chinatown exactly. for, for two minutes and you'll realize there's a lot more to it but in a way you might have actually gotten closer to the heart of old Hollywood. Well, also
3: musically chet baker chet baker and, and then shorty rogers and those guys were playing great jazz in la west coast yeah. jazz was was an up and coming thing in the fifties very much resented by the new york guys and the chicago guys and the cleveland yeah. guys but think of it shorty rogers and and stan Kenton and chad baker there were a ton of great jazz guys came out of the west coast i think the last album by the way paul just to finish up on that the the album i'm not sure it was ever going to be called la stories it was always going to be la stories hmm. but uh uh, I'm not, I was never sure of a good title, and I have frank, I, frankly, Susan Markheim, one of my managers, came up with the best title, and I, I just sort of blew past it. It's a line from uh, the song I wrote for Judy Sill. It's, it, it's just, uh, it? Tears are going to fall. Mm. And it, it really wow. is, is a soundtrack to a movie. I don't have the money to make. I mean, it's very cinematic, and those beautiful string charts, that's uh, Billy Childs was also playing that magnificent piano intro and outro on downtown before the war which is a completely autobiographical song wow i think it's the best song i've ever written and the war is just the loss of innocence buses used to run like thunder
4: up and down our street we'd grab the bumper and slide behind them to a scorched our feet Struck a match on my front tooth and put it out in my hand. Headed for some kind of future out there as a tough and tender man. We used to go downtown, but we don't go anymore. We used to go down. Jazz
1: and the lights, the girls stayed out all night. Before the war. It's a fabulous song. Thank you. Um I want to go back to before you were a guitar player. Um you mentioned that you you didn't pick up a guitar until you were in your twenties. Um That's right. Played tenor sax and drums. Yeah. And my understanding is you were the drummer in a band called the Cinders that released uh, a couple of singles and the second single which was on warner brothers one side of that record was a song called no not my heart uh that you are credited as one of the writers on it is a song i was not able to dig up i was not able to find it i don't have any memory of that they
3: just got me drunk because we we finished the other side which was a big i don't know if you noticed also but between singles the name changed from the cinders to john david and the cinders right because Norman Petty, who was the producer with Jimmy Gilmer, just said, look, these other guys can't sing. It's going to be you and, and them playing. So let's, let's be straight about this. And also, this is a ballad. Maybe we can make a mark in a little different direction with this. And then he tells Charlie Bates, the guy who's the leader, he says, you know, if you guys write the B-side of the record, you get paid for that, too. Huh. All right. well, I'd never written a song. It occurred to me to write a song. Charlie and Steve couldn't write songs. They knew three chords. And I said, well, let's just write a song. And Charlie goes, yeah, like we know how to do that. <laughs> Steve went out and got a case of beer. And I don't remember much else about that night except me screaming a lot.
1: <laughs> do, you, do, you, uh, do you remember the, the – I, I know you don't remember writing it, but do you remember the song itself? Have you heard it in, in a while? I heard it once
3: after we finished it. And I went, that is the biggest piece of shit I've ever heard in my life. I'm so
1: sorry. My name is on it.
3: And Norman just said, well, look, it's a couple of cents every time we sell a record. So
1: <laughs> all right, there you go. Welcome to the music business.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and then Charlie Bates, the guy who was the leader of the band who was not much of a singer, but very prescient. He said, don't worry, John David, no one's ever going to hear that.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, Scott talked about both of us moving to L.A. about 25 years ago. And one of the first places that I wanted to visit when I came to town was the Troubadour. Um, Because for me, that place just had a mythology. Um, It does. uh, You've lived that place and part of the, you know, formative, you're part of the mythology there. So do do you even look back and say, yes, there's a mythology to that place?
3: Well, it it was sort of, um, it was sort of my last two years of college. Hmm. You know, my first t- two years of college, although they were always, there was a semester and then they'd kick me out and then they'd come back for a semester and they'd kick me out again. So I think I did three and a half semesters and then left before finals one year when fuck this, I'd rather be in California with naked girls and marijuana <laughs> <laughs> than study for these bloody exams that I haven't even been to class for. <laughs> so the only classes I went to were, uh, I played clarinet in the woodwind ensemble, timpani in the orchestra, drums in the big band. And uh, wrote charts for the big band and took music theory and composition. Wow. And I basically didn't show up for anything else. I showed up for one poetry class for mm-hmm. one semester. Wow. Because they had a really cute, chubby little teacher that had a crush on me. <laughs> but otherwise, I just, you know, I had two bands. I had a jazz band that I love, a trio, uh, called the Johnny Stevenson Trio. He was the piano player. And uh, I just didn't occur to him. I mean, I loved rock and roll. I was I really adored all those Texas hillbilly guys, you know, uh, Buddy Holly and Orbison. But it just didn't occur to me to play country music. And I loved Hank Williams. That was too freaky not to go along with. That was just, mm. you know, from some other planet that was really deeply in pain and, and beautifully able to express it. But I didn't know anything about country music until I met Linda Ronstadt. Hmm. Wow. And she knew every kind of music. She didn't know classical music as well as me and, and or opera, but, man, she knew country music, and she didn't know as much jazz either, but she had pegged all the really early good um, country writers and singers, and so we listened to a lot of that music together. But when we were both little kids, our parents loved those Sinatra and Nelson Rid- Riddle records, and they were played all the time. Yeah. And when Linda and I were living together, both times we'd listen to music every night. It's the last thing we'd do before we go to bed. And We always closed by listening to a Sinatra album called Songs for Only the Lonely," And the last song we always listened to was Angel Eyes. The last wow. line of which is, use me while I disappear. Fabulous. It's also the song he retired uh, with at least twice.
0: She did that record with Nelson Riddle, I think. Back was it in you the did 80s three that? with
3: him, yeah, yeah. Wow, they're fabulous too. I mean, she she really. I encouraged her to do it, but frankly, I I just hoped it would come out, you know, really good because it's hard if you grow up singing straight eight music. This applies to drummers and singers maybe more than anything. But if you if your life really grows up like this, listening to and playing one two three four one two three four, that's rock and roll or and almost everything related to it. If you go out playing jazz, they're not eighth notes, they're dotted eighth notes. one, two, three, four It's just a completely different mindset. and uh, if you have if, if you can understand both, it really makes you a hell of a musician. There aren't very many, especially drummers. there aren't very many drummers that can do both yeah, right you didn't used to be I think more so now. I think in the last 15 years, the cross pollinization of rhythm sections has uh, enabled a lot of drummers to play good rock and roll and good jazz as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, you talk about that early '70s period in LA, which, of course, you know, seems like such a a magical time. You're you're with Linda at the time. Um, you know, you're putting out your first solo record after you know having been in a duo with with glenn fry um i want to talk about that first solo album which is self-titled john david Souther. okay um you know that's a, a a record where you wrote all the songs uh solo um they yep. they have gone on to have Additional Lives, Bonnie Raitt uh, covered Run Like a Thief in 1975. The Eagles covered How Long in in 2007, many, many years after the record came out. How about
3: that? It only took 40 years for that song to be a hit.
1: (laughs) Right. But um, (laughs) talk a little bit about kind of coming out of the the duo and finding your identity as a a solo artist and and writing that first record. You know something? Everything is just a
3: progression. Every step is built on the steps before and i I'd, i had i had played a lot of kind of music after i moved to la i was i was the drummer for the ice house blues band for a while norman greenbaum and i had a band imagine that
1: spirit in the sky yeah. norman greenbaum well wow.
3: spirit in the sky before spirit in the sky wow he had a band called uh natty bumpo huh uh wow. And it was, we're the only band to ever get fired from the Japanga Corral for playing too loud. <laughs> and I was really pissed off that the guy fired us. And I said, hey, man, you know, Neil Young plays here all the time with Crazy Horse, and they have twice as many amps as us They play louder than us. <laughs> right. And he says, yeah, but the people who come to see them drink. Ah he said the, gr- the girls who come to see you they come in on acid or something and just spin around and it's nice to see all those cotton skirts and no underwear but he said no one's buying any booze when you're playing <laughs> so, he said where else do you guys play and, and, and Norman says we play love ends and the guy wow. was basically like you're out of here get out of here <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's amazing
3: <laughs> what I was listening to uh, right up until I was doing that album, and Linda had gone on the road. I don't think I don't think there was anybody at the house because I went up and did it in in uh, just south of San Francisco with a producer named Fred Catero. And um, what I had been listening to was a lot of Miles Davis and a lot of George Jones. And now, I, I, the only thing I can think of that's common thread between those two, besides high quality and truth. Is something that Miles Davis said when he said there's something about George Jones's voice that sounds like a horn to me. And um, it did to me too. It's like not much vibrato, almost none. You know, just this clear, yeah. just slick as ice, you know. And I listened to those two guys a lot. And as I listened back to uh, my first album years later, I thought, well, that would, that would explain why I just, I really embraced that kind of, thin wiry sound and no vibrato and i don't know i i never like to make the same album twice you know then black rose is completely over the top the other direction
1: well and you were even bringing in jazz guys on black rose i mean that was pretty early oh yeah
3: thing. like crazy you kidding? donald bird yeah stanley clark yeah johnny garan chuck demonico charlie veal yeah great jazz guys in
1: yeah yeah so the jazz the jazz thing obviously is part of the the roots it goes all the way back You know something? When I'm home,
0: it's all I listen to. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned um, writing songs in Nashville by appointment with strangers. Um, (laughs) Doesn't it sound cold? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds just antiseptic. Um, Yeah, I mean, it sounds sounds completely sterile. Um, And and also just the polar opposite. To what you had come to know in those early seventies, you were writing songs with your friends. Um, exactly, there was this team coming up with with the guys in the Eagles and with Jackson Brown. and with Bonnie Raitt and Warren sure.
3: Zevon and Waddy Wachtel and Nicolette Larson and Lowell George. It was it was a pretty astonishing group of people.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, you're you're part of this. Team and this movement and and to begin to achieve success together, you know, with a song like Best of My Love to go to number one with your friends, is <laughs> exactly. really different than to go to number one with a bunch of guys that you just met and you're not sure you have their numbers in your phone. Like, hey, should we t- should we have a party? What should we do? <laughs> yeah. um, exactly. But, but you know, you guys just out of out of relationship, these songs seemed like they were springing out. You know, they were. You're,
3: Paul, you're exactly right about that. And and I'll tell you something. What made it even sweeter is that. Uh, henley and i were sure that was a, a hit single and the record company said never too long steel guitar no drums not a chance and they so we had mm. something else out that was burbling around on the low charts i don't know what it was maybe it was james dean or something i can't even remember now yeah but this little station in uh minneapolis started playing best of my love all the time and mm people were calling, and it would, so they were playing it again and again, and I've forgotten this program director's name, but he was also the mayor, vice mayor or something like what? that. It's a really strange story, but it just <laughs> kept gathering steam in Minneapolis, and then Cleveland picked it up, and then Toledo, and the Detroit, and all around the Great Lakes, it just, it started really bubbling up, and so the record company and in their infinite corporate wisdom did a hack job edit on the end of it to bring it down under under four minutes and it's just terrible, I mean, I don't know if you can find one, but it's it's wretched. It goes from the last line to the last verse uh right to the chorus with none of the pretty little interlude in between. it just it sounds like it was done with a with a, with a I don't know a hatchet. It was terrible, so <laughs> Henley heard it and went berserk and uh, called the record company, made him withdraw it, and put it out again as as we had recorded it the full single. But the truth is, uh, radio stations were already just playing the album cut
5: Hmm.
3: because nobody liked the single. It sounded stupid. You know, people were getting used to this beautiful song, and then suddenly there's this very abrupt thing right at one of the most tender moments of the song. So it was triply sweet for me that Eagles got their first gold record with, you know, a song that we wrote together.
4: That same old crowd was like a club dark cloud that we could never rise above.
3: And yes, the other thing that made me writing on those appointment kind of rights in Nashville was that me and my my friends and I are slow. I mean, I swear to God, New Kid in Town took a year to write. Just tweaking this and tweaking that. And I had already had the chorus for about a year. Anyway, we were using it in my band. It's just a jam. And then it was time for the album that became Hotel California. And as we always did, we always gathered before album time. What do you got? What do you got? We'd each throw down something, you know. Mm. And there was there was only, there were only two or three responses. Uh, the worst of all was silence. It basically, <laughs> meant your your idea was crap, and it wasn't going to be repeated. <laughs> and uh, Henley had a, a a famous response too. If you throw down an idea, whether you were playing it or singing it or writing it. He'd kind of wrinkle up his forehead and say, yeah, I think we could say that. (laughs) Now, Glenn's response was even better and and sillier. But if Glenn really liked it, now get this, we're only 26 or something. We're still kids, you know. But Glenn would say, oh, yeah, those kids are going to love that.
0: Those kids that are five years younger than you, (laughs) yeah.
3: So, but it everything took time, and we were happy to take the time. We knew it cost more to make records that way, and that it was slower. But we were convinced, and I think history has borne us out that the songs were better. Yeah, because because we were careful with them, and it's not that some things didn't come in a burst because they did. Sometimes just wow, just. Bam, a whole thing would lay itself out for you, but we would still pick over it and say, There's no reason to say it ain't there. I mean, yes, it's colloquially fine in some songs, but is, it, or something like, you know, isn't there a better rhyme for Nile? Hmm. Let's just go every place that we need to go to try to find that and not just work backwards from the rhyme, but also work forward from the logic of the previous verse or chorus yeah. or whatever it was so when I get to Nashville and these guys they show up at 11 and they want to demo it the next day I'm just like what <laughs> right yeah yeah and they're settling for rhymes that have just been done so many times you know and and then right. this tendency towards no melodies. these country hits that just go da 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 and in the chorus you get to go up a da 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 that is not what this brain has been training and preparing for my whole life. I would rather, I I'd rather do something interesting and not sell records. Yeah. There are days I, re- I don't agree with that, but that <laughs> seems to be my inclination.
1: You, you raise an interesting point. You talked about new kid in town taking like a year. Um, and I don't know if this is even an answerable question cause it's really probably comes down to instinct, but as a songwriter, if you've been chasing something for a year, can you really articulate what that internal compass is? That's the difference between, I know there's something here and we're just going to keep chasing it versus when you kind of go, you know what, there's probably not something here. So I'm going to let this one go. I mean, obviously you made the right, right choice with that song, but is there a way to, to even articulate, um, how you know when it's time to let let something go versus keep pursuing 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 well i can articulate the confusion about that but
3: i don't Mm -hmm. think there's uh i don't think even within my own standards uh, that there's a way to be sure uh sometimes you come back to something you know i mean i'll take a really silly little example you're only lonely as a is a pretty simple song you know it's basically four chords two verses no chorus no bridge and i wrote that in 73 and i didn't record it till 79 because i just never thought there was enough there and then when i was in the studio making that album which we were going to call white rhythm and blues despite some bizarre resistance from the record company was somebody alluded that there might there might be something racial about it that didn't go down well, and I said, have you seen my band you know i have a <laughs> I have a hmm. japanese a, a bass player, a black drummer, a Cuban percussionist and singer, a Jewish league guitar player, an Italian drum it really is not an issue in my band. okay so <laughs> right. what it is is a kind of a tribute to Buddy Holly and to all those skinny voice like me these West Texas guys that were trying to sing r and b but it didn't come out like that it came out like what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes, it, sometimes it just takes your friends also to let you know that something's good. I knew there was something about yeah. new kid in town that was, uh, uh, that was kind of ubiquitous, kind of universal. I mean, everybody knows, you know, has got that understands what that means. is a new kid. Johnny come lately. You know, it was one of my dad's yeah. favorite phrases, you know, and, and I thought, I knew there was something there, but I just, aside from knowing that I was going to go into that the five chord at the bridge, which is kind of a rip from all of the Doc Palmas songs, but I really didn't have anything except the chorus and a vague idea of, of uh, the story, because we were really writing about it, nobody in particular. We were, we were already in our, you know, mid twenties and there were kids that were 18. It was sounding pretty good. So there's always a new gunfighter in town. That's what the song's about. Yeah. But I just, I didn't know where to go with it. And we were sitting at Glenn's house having our little pre-album meeting. And everybody's throwing a piece down. And I threw that down. And Glenn just went, wait a minute. That's radio. That's wow. that's a that's a must. And Don was like, yeah, that's a keeper. We, we work on that one. Wow. All so right. it, they helped me bring it to life, you know. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I didn't even hear them recorded. I was in Miami, but while, uh, while Glenn was doing the vocal, or no, Simzik was mixing all the guitar stuff, so we had plenty of room to do vocal tracks, because, you know, those guys are the kings of overdubs and co- composite vocals. And, uh, but we were upstairs working on the lyrics to a song that Felder had started called Victim of Love. Instead of being down in the studio listening to what Samzik was doing with the music. So I heard the track a couple of times and uh, I think I heard Glenn take a pass at the vocal. And I, I came, we had finished writing everything we were writing. So I came back to LA and, and I, I didn't hear it again until it was finished. Johnny-
4: Everybody.
3: I didn't hear Heartache tonight till it was on the radio. Really? And I started that song at my house. That was Glenn and I just walking around my swimming pool, smoking cigarettes, and we'd been listening to Sam Cooke songs all morning, and so many of them are shuffles. And we were just repeating what a million people have said, which is white drummers don't play shuffles very well. <laughs> or they didn't then. I mean, if you want to hear good shuffles, get a Bobby Bland record, you know? Right. And we, so he said, We we got we can write a cool Shuffle. It doesn't have to be real serious blues. We're white guys. What do we what do we know about blues anyway? But we can take that form and and we and Glenn just started clapping his hands, literally. Just somebody's gonna hurt someone. And as it went on, we thought, you know, that's that's the way to start this song. Wow. It's just something big and percussive and no instruments.
4: Somebody's gonna hurt someone.
3: we get this thing going and we think we're on to something good. He shows it to Don Henley and he makes his improvements on it, which are always exactly the right thing. And we just couldn't get a chorus that felt as good as the rest of the song. And we, and we it needed a great chorus. I mean, that's that kind of song. It's a pop song. You know?
5: yeah.
3: It needed to hit that chorus with something really memorable. And uh next thing I know, uh Don calls me up and he says, Hey, so Glenn was talking to Seeger on the phone and he, he sang him the song and Seeger just sang him the chorus back.
0: <laughs> what? Jeez. <laughs> wow.
3: Actually, I think the first thing he said to me was, how do you feel about four writers on one song? I said, well, it's cutting the dollar pretty thin. It better be good. And then he he told me the story. He said, yeah, see, so you just came in and just sang the chorus one." him.
1: Wow. Wow.
3: Okay. How's it, how does it go? And he, he told me, and I said, shit, sounds like we got a song. You know, do we need any more verses? And he goes, ah, I'll just sing the first verse again.
1: <laughs> you know. Wow. That i I didn't know that Seeger uh wrote that chorus until maybe a year or two ago i I found that out and I thought that makes so much sense that is such a a Seeger chorus i mean it it's w- once I heard it, I'm like, how did I not know this? <laughs> it is very much you know Seeger's i mean it, that's a lot of Glenn's
3: musical identities that midwestern rock and roll man it's like the the white mm. offspring of motown, yeah. Um, I mean that's that's what Glenn always brought to these things, man. He just was a driving wheel. And he got it from Seeger and you know, he played in Seeger's band. He's the he's the harmony vocal on Ramblin' Gamblin' man.
1: Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
3: Well listen to it now and you'll you'll immediately go, Oh shit, that's fry. You know? <laughs> it sounds exactly like it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Seeger, I mean, obviously he was like enormously successful. I think he's retired now, but uh, I don't think he gets as much credit as he ought to as a songwriter. He's a fabulous songwriter. Good songwriter. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a, an ear
3: for a hook. that's just uh pretty, pretty amazing.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: Talking about a song like that, that was a song in search of a chorus um, for a little while. I mean, that. There's so much of a patience theme that I keep hearing when you're talking about these songs and how they're written and the time it takes, you know, to know that you have a great verse and you don't have the chorus yet, but you're willing to stick with it. There's also at times I think writers will get a line that's in search of a song. Sometimes you have a song that's in search of a line, then you have a, a line that's in search of a song. Um, do you collect lyrics more often than that? Yeah, yeah I mean, because I like when, when I hear the song. Come what may on tenderness, uh, the line, I miss you like childhood. When I heard that line, I thought, that's the kind of line that that you would just kind of think of while watching a movie or something. I think, I have to write a, a song around this. W- was it that way for you, or, or did, did that line come just in, in the process of writing that song?
3: I don't know where that line came from, but it must be good because it usually makes somebody in the audience cry.
0: Huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was almost crying when I heard it. Um,
3: I can't sing This House on stage.
0: It's just too, too fucking sad.
3: Really? Wow. Yeah. But, wow. you know, maybe I'll get over that. For years, I couldn't sing Prisoner in Disguise on stage. And then one night I just thought, you know, that's a really good piece of music. Huh. And uh, yeah. it came out great. And it hasn't bothered me since.
1: Yeah. I wanna, one thing we haven't talked about, you mentioned Prisoner in Disguise, which comes from the era of the... Souther-Hillman-Fure band. Um, Let's talk about that era because it was sort of that, you know, super group era of putting together uh, individual singer-songwriters. But I get the sense that, like, not a lot from that period is something that you still, you know, like, with the exception of that song, it seems like a lot of that material aren't things that you still kind of have in your repertoire.
3: Well, I'll tell you what Hillman says about it. He says, um, one of the real rubs in that band and one of the difficulties for Richie and I was that we had already written most of our best songs and you were just starting to write yours. Huh. And he said you, he said your your tunes on those albums are really good and ours are eh, kind of tired and he says, it's just one of those moments you were you were just on a rampage and uh, we were you know we'd been we already been famous for 10 years or something we'd already done a lot of really good work and uh, clearly you, were, you just took over that band Get and put the band together for you And you were writing these great songs And so, you know, we, nobody was going to fight you about it They were better songs
4: You just act like a fool On a holiday There's nothing, nothing that you wouldn't try
3: You know, it's dangerous to put together people and expect something really fast, and that's what happened with that. I mean, we, when we first went to Colorado and started rehearsing that over Richie's Garage, I mean, we had people from Rolling Stone come to the rehearsals, and Joni and Graham Nash, and you can't, you can't develop a band's personality under that kind of pressure. They should have put us out on the road for a year playing bars.
1: yeah 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 that's a lot that's a lot of uh in the glare of the spotlight that's a a difficult way to put together something new exactly yeah well uh, i want to come back to something that you were starting to talk about a a little while ago you talked about you're only lonely and you said that that was a song that you had written years before and we've kind of been coming back to this theme of songs taking their time um tell us about uh, writing that song and and why it was kind of the, the amount of time it was between working on that song and then releasing it, which was your biggest hit as an artist.
3: By far. Yeah. I just didn't think it was finished. I mean, I I had a, a girl who was flying into Colorado to see me on weekends sometimes and pretty hilarious. I'd drive down to Denver and, and and pick her up and we'd drive way back up into the mountains and sort of, you know, hide out for a week and then she had to go back to LA and, at one point, she went back, and was I, I, kind of general ennui. She was just dissatisfied with things, and I just—it's just you're it's just, only lonely. You just spend—you like me—you spend too much time alone. So I wrote those two verses. This is a great line with that little kind of Robinson, uh Early Brothers uh, beat, and then I just kind of forgot about it. And then in '79, when we were making that album. We just had ballads, ballads, ballads. And Waddy Wartell, bless his heart, he said, Jake, you don't you have anything up-tempo? Anything? Huh. I said, well, not so much, really. I said, I got uh, this song I started in Colorado years ago. He said, I said, it's really good, but it's way far from finished. It doesn't have a bridge. It doesn't have choruses. It doesn't even have a third verse. And, and Waddy just said, yeah, play it, play it. <laughs> so I played it for him and... He just the, the room kind of got still, and he and Don Grohlnik looked at me, and he just went, Kother. sing the first verse again." <laughs> so I said, "I didn't have a last verse," and I said, "Well, oh, okay," but he said, "That's a single." I went, "Huh? All right, I'll sing the first verse again." Wow, <laughs> and that's otherwise it would have never been recorded, probably.
1: Funny connection uh, there between that and Heartache Tonight. Just sing the first verse again. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, it's been done for, you know, a million years, but I, I don't do it very often. Yeah. In fact, I'm not sure I've done it except
1: for those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, of, of these songs we've talked about being patient songs and songs that sort of took time to get there, I've heard that Her Town 2 was a song that actually came a little quicker. One night. One night. And it was done. Yep. We were
3: sitting in my house, James. Uh, and Waddy and I were sitting in my house and uh, James and I just wanted to go out and get stoned, but w- Waddy had uh, the the the, instincts, the correct instinct. He said, let's write a song. And James and I just went, oh, really? That work, you know? And he said, what about? <laughs> Waddy said, well, let's write it about. And he named this woman and we went, okay. And so Waddy hands the guitar to James and he said, just play something. So he started playing that beautiful little four-chord riff, and uh, he sang a line to me, and I sang a line back to him. He sang another line to me, I sang a line back to him. And it just went like that until it was done. I think in the course of the next week, we maybe changed one line. One line and one word and another line.
0: If you could make them all go quickly like that, would you, or do you kind of like the process of it taking longer?
3: I'd sell my soul to the devil if they all came quickly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, no, it's Amazing. it's
3: too much agony. I have I have eight or ten beacons boxes full of lyrics here. Wow, wow. would fill up legal tablets with words, and you know the the ones that grabbed me at the time. I care. I either tear the pages out or just leave them open to that page. They're all piled around everywhere. And sometimes I come back to them and they look really good. And sometimes I come back to them and go, you know what, this is crap. It's never going to be anything. Hmm. Yeah. Shred the thing and and that's it. But there are still boxes of things that are might either be songs. Some of them are certainly going to be poems because I've been collecting those sort of you know, waiting to have the nerves to try to publish something, and I, one of these days, uh, I will probably get these collected into something legible. There's about a half dozen that I think are finished and very good, and and I have a couple of short stories too that are probably going to be part of the weirdest something that people will probably call a memoir, but it isn't. There's just they're just short stories about things that I've done with people I know and. The first one is something that happened with Zivon and I. It's great. And there's another one that's about Carrie Fisher and I. Huh. Uh, there's a, some really interesting stuff on an adventure that Glenn and I had. And, uh, they, so they're really going to be short stories, but they're going to have a name in them that people will recognize. I don't know whether that's going to make me seem cheesy or not, but <laughs> I, I think it sort of adds to the color of the stories. Oh, I'll read it. I think they're going to be pretty good.
1: One of my favorite things about this show is when we get the opportunity to talk to co-writers of uh, the same song. And we had Mike Campbell on the show and, um, you know, we got to talk with him about the heart of the matter. And and we know how Mike, you know, Mike kind of works as a. Uh, as a songwriter and producer at the same time, he creates tracks and then, you know, other people step in and, and, you know, so I'd love to get your perspective on you and, and Don kind of receiving this track and and how that song came together, which is such a fantastic song. Thank
3: you. Um, You know, Henley just called me and he said, man, I got got this track from Mike Campbell. You got to hear this. So he came over and played it for me and I just said, shit, man, that's amazing. It's, I feel like you've been reading my mind. Hmm. And Henley said, yeah. He said, if we don't make a hit out of this, we're idiots, because it's such a good, it's so organized, and it's such a beautiful progression. And we started farting around, and it didn't take long to come up with a melody, and then we, uh, I just got stuck for lyrics. I couldn't I couldn't think of anything past the first verse. And it's uh, <laughs> the funny thing don had this idea we we write in such i mean we know each other so well it's ridiculous but we write in these little pieces like we we weren't even playing the song and he just says you know and we go to the chorus what if we have the background singers like you know the choir going forgiveness forgiveness that's all he says about the chorus and i went hmm yeah it's okay it didn't really kill me and of course it turns out to be brilliant (laughs) because it's what the song is about yeah but I never heard the second verse until after he sang it. Really? That whole brilliant second verse, which I think is the real meat of the song. And and probably what it says is more probably more present now than it was even then. Wow. But uh, I didn't hear it. It came down from the vocal booth. Wow. He went up there with a bunch of pieces of paper in his hand and came down with that. I just went, man, that's <laughs> amazing.
4: so uncertain There's a yearning undefined And people filled with rage We all need a little tenderness How can love survive In such a graceless age all ah, the trust and self-assurance That lead to happiness They're the other things We kill Pride and competition cannot feel these empty arms And the work I put between us,
5: you know it doesn't keep me warm I'm learning to live without you
4: now But I miss your feelings
1: And you guys wrote, I mean, you guys wrote, I think there's three songs on that record uh and who knows how many others maybe there were that you guys wrote that that aren't on the record but that seemed to be a a very fruitful time for you and don together
3: oh yeah it was we we wrote the, that blues song at dirt were dollars uh in aspen watching ronald reagan give a state of the union speech huh wow because <laughs> it was just there was so much bullshit coming from the television we just said man this is the time to write a blues about a homeless guy <laughs> right. Because this jerk off is going to produce a lot of homeless guys.
4: When I was flying back from Lubbock, I saw Jesus on the plane. Or maybe it was Elvis. You know, they kind of look the same. Hey, hey, look out, Junior. You're stepping on my bed. And I said, I don't see nothing. I'm just glad it made it If $1.
1: Well, you know, we, we kind of talked earlier about timing and we talked about, um, you know, uh, I'll be here at closing time. You said, I know that song's a a hit when it finds the right artist, And you talked about, you know, the Eagles waiting 40 years to, uh, have a hit with with one of the songs off (laughs) your, your first record. But there's a, there's a song on your 1984 solo record, Home by Dawn, called I'll Take Care of You. And that's a song that, you know, it uh, came out in 1984. It's a, it's a great song. But a lot of people didn't hear it until the Dixie Chicks um, recorded that song. And it sort of brought this whole exactly. new life to it.
4: Times are hard and are hard. What can But struggle through
1: And that's happened with you with a ton of, you know, particularly country artists, George Strait and Brooks and Dunn, and people yeah. who have taken old songs of, of yours and, you know, kind of maybe introduced them to a different audience. Um, what is that? I mean, obviously, uh, financially, it's great. But as a as an artist, um, yeah, it's what brilliant.
3: is... brilliant. <laughs> yeah. The Dixie Chicks record sold 14 million records. Yeah, yeah. I mean, amazing.
1: Um, but, like... Artistically speaking, does that make you nervous when you find out someone's going to cover one of your songs like, oh, I hope they treat it how I would want them to? Or are you able to kind of let that go and just let people interpret? Uh, I think when I was younger, I was probably uh, a little trepidatious about
3: how some artists would uh, record my songs. But the truth is, most of them, the biggest records have been by people I knew. So right. I I already trusted them, and very often I was involved in the recording, especially if it was Linda's record. But you know, there 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 are all kinds of great off the wall records. There's a really uh, great Michael Bublé version of Heartache Tonight.
1: Yeah, it's,
3: it's a big band record, which is what I sort of would envision for it anyway. And there's a dobie Gray version of Best of My Love. There's a Hugh Masekela version of Best of My Love which is really something because he could not remember anything but the first verse. So he just kept singing that and then playing <laughs> in between and then singing the choruses.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: But you got, you got to, you got to just appreciate it. There's no way to even, there's no way to even look at it except without, except with gratitude. I mean, when somebody yeah. called me and told me that straight had cut, uh, La- the last in love, I thought, well, man, great. I would, I would love to hear this as a country record. And then I heard it, and he sang it exactly like I did. He sang all the licks, all the little melody uh, tricks. So I asked Tony Brown, I said, who pitched him this song? And he said, nobody. He just came in and said, I love this record. Listen to it.
1: Huh, wow. Wow. You know, you talk about Heartache Tonight as kind of a big band thing, which I've heard the Buble record, and I think it works really well. Yeah, it does. Which... Kind of brings up something that Paul and I have have talked about, um, which is that the whole Southern California thing in the '70s and the early '70s, and, and mostly with the Eagles, it's very kind of rural oriented. I mean, it's kind of pastoral in a sense. That there's it's laid back and it's you know it, it's more country influence. There's more steel guitars, and then like post Joe Walsh, and as you get toward the later '70s um it It seems very city, it seems very urban. it's like more rockin. Um, and I don't know I mean, I feel like the whole scene kind of shifted in that way from from kind of countryish to more uh more urban rock. and I wonder if you have any thoughts about that.
3: Well, we've been there. you know I mean why not do something different hmm. i mean it's It's a milder version of my sort of philosophy about my records. I never make two records that are remotely the same. Yeah. I I don't have anything against people who do that. As a matter of fact, I think one of the funniest stories I ever heard, somebody was interviewing Van Morrison about the time that uh, Spanish Steps came out and except for the Spanish Steps in which he plays pretty respectable alto saxophone, you know, there was that one of the interview questions was uh, to Van, uh, these seem to sound a lot like her old songs. (laughs) They seem very much the same. And he just said, well, people seem to like them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I heard someone once say that uh, ACDC always writes the same song. And then someone then responded, yeah, but it's a good song. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> they do. And it is a good song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, you know, we we talked about You're Only Lonely and there's obviously a a bit of a Roy Orbison uh, inspiration there. And, you know, you and and Will Jennings actually wrote a couple songs with Roy himself on his final album, um, King of Hearts. And, you know, like the song Coming Home in particular is is just a really cool song. I, I truly
3: love that song. Roy and I were very satisfied with that song. When I wrote the line uh, of Thunder Over Cain, and he just went, you know, I love, I love that when you, can, <laughs> when you can use a biblical reference in a way that no one's used it before. Yeah. Because yeah. he, he had this soft, beautiful little voice. He even sang really quietly. You couldn't hear Roy as was standing across the room from him. But Boyd put him on a microphone, and he just had that tone. Yeah. Bam. wow he Lit up a microphone.
4: I heard the thunder over And I heard
1: mentioned incorporating that uh, biblical reference in that song in a, in a, in an interesting way. Um, and, you know, I, I, think of a song like One More Night um, on If the World Was You album. <laughs> and you've got that great line about, I talked to Jesus like I knew I should. He said that you're born again. I said, yeah, but that was long ago. And I remember thinking then One More Night, um, which yeah. make, it makes me curious, um, you know, with you kind of making those two references was, was church music like a part of your formative years as a kid, like hymns and that kind of thing growing up? Oh yeah,
3: yeah. I know a lot of hymns. In fact, I always sprinkle little bits of them in my set in the songs.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
3: yeah, I was. Listen, my mother's family are very churchy. My dad's not so much, but my mother's family. We were in church every time the doors opened. <laughs> so I know all those, and I have all those hymnals anyway. I'm I really, uh, I I love the way those chords resolve in and out of each other. And I love the way they suspend for a minute for effect. And yeah, you know, I, was, I was very moved by a lot of those songs. I, I'm not particularly religious, but I thought the music was really great and, and did something that really did stir your soul. Yeah, Which reminds me, I was li- I was listening to Sam Cooke's record with the Soul Stirrers yesterday when just singing gospel. And he's singing all those licks that he later sang on his hit records it's so funny mm-hmm. when all these old gospel
1: songs and he's still doing that. Whoa. whoa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 The, the, the soul Stirrer stuff, uh, is that in the, the live at the Harlem square cup Co- club. That's his best. I think that's his best stuff even more than his hit records. It's all pretty damn
3: good. But I'll tell you this. It, I don't think there's a better record or a better song anywhere that a change is going to come.
1: Oh, it's yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to ask you, you know, we talked about the uh, Roy Orbison thing, and that was in in 1992 that that you had a couple songs on Roy's album. And then it was 2008 that your If the World Was You album came out. And I don't know if you were writing a lot of new stuff between them. There's sort of this gap, and I'm curious what was going on in in that gap for you.
3: I didn't do anything in the 90s except stay home and enjoy my new house. I built a house. Uh, well, I started in eighty nine. I think we finished in mid ninety. And uh it was just a perfect house. I'd always wanted to build a house. I had two new rescue dogs, great girlfriend, huge swimming pool, biggest swimming pool I've ever seen in the Hollywood Hills because no one's got any room up there. Yeah. And I had hmm. a big parking uh area. My the fence was big. It was a big piece of property for the hills, too, so I could park 10 cars inside my gate. Huh. Oh, wow. I was getting a lot of money. I mean, you know, Straight was cutting those things. Dixie Chicks was a big payday. I had a new deal with EMI that was, just gave me a ton of money, and they were giving me more money every time I turned in songs, and I just didn't feel like going on the road. Yeah, yeah. I've been yeah. on the road for 20 years, you know. I mean, all the men in my family worked until they dropped. Mm. I just thought, that's not going to be me. Man. I got money. I'm going to enjoy myself at home. I'm going to travel when I feel like it. I'm going to ski I'm gonna enjoy this pool and buy a bunch of cars and have food delivered. I, I, had, a, I had a great decade I just didn't do any work.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but it, I'm I'm actually going back to something that you talked about before. Um, I think we were talking about a uh, new kid in town and you said uh-huh. that you guys were upstairs working on Victim of Love uh, at the time that 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 (laughs) record was being mixed. Well, no, I think just at the time Glenn was uh, singing. Oh, that Glenn was singing, right, right. Um, Victim of Love, there's a line in that song. I don't know whose line it is, and maybe you don't remember at this point either. But that line, I could be wrong, but I'm not
0: but I'm not, not. <laughs>
1: such a great, yeah, a yeah. great line. Yes, exactly. That's the story of my life. <laughs> Argumentative bastard that I am. I mean, do you have any memory? I know that's very specific, but do you have any memory of that line? Yeah. I remember saying
3: it and just all of us going, okay, right. In town, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I've used
0: it in conversation.
3: There aren't very many things that are that clear specifically, but that's one and this fantastic second verse that henley wrote to heart of the matter is one just remember being floored by that yeah Mm -hmm. wow as soon as he said these times are so uncertain as the yearning undefined and people filled with rage i just thought oh fuck!" man we've we've gone someplace completely new with
1: this you know Yeah. yeah yeah wow yeah. And it's when you can get a line that not only conveys uh, an idea, but it conveys an attitude and conveys an emotion. I mean, that's, it's so hard to, to, to do that well. And I feel like there's so many examples where you've really done that, you know, I could be wrong, but I'm not as so much attitude, you know, um, it's just, it, it's remarkable to me.
3: Thank you. We had a little. That was a really difficult song to write for a simple little rock and roll song. Just those the verses of that we were we were getting a lot of flack from Felder because he didn't think his wife would like it. (laughs) And and none of us were married, so we're all you know. I mean, you you are right to consider the people around you. He had little girls and a wife, and as soon as we said. Uh, a room full of noise and dangerous boys still makes you, whatever
0: is, thirsty and hot. Thirsty and hot, <laughs> yeah.
3: And Felder said, I don't, I don't think Susan's going to like that. And, you know, him and I, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to call home and ask our girlfriends if they like what we're writing. And, and Don, bless his heart, Felder said, well, you know, having a wife is not exactly the same as having a girlfriend. <laughs> right. But, of course, we, we got our way. But. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I'd love to, you, you mentioned the Black Rose album earlier. That's a, a record that has Faithless Love on it, which of course is also very well known because of Linda Ronstadt's version. The little song that keeps on giving. Yeah. Tell us about writing that one or or if you have specific memories of, of writing it.
3: Yeah. Very specific. I was sitting on, on a pi- piano bench. The, the second house Linda and I lived in was in Beechwood Canyon. And it had a little room at the back that was a step up, and it was paneled in this old corny kind of knotty pine p- paneling. But it was just enough room for this the world's smallest baby grand piano, <laughs> which I had rented from modern music, I think, in Hollywood. And I was sitting back there on the piano bench, and I had just gotten to the bridge of Faithless Love, and I had that interesting little way. You know, the bridge just modulates for one chord, and then modulates back again. Yeah, And it's it's pretty... Pretty sneaky. Not, not everybody spots it. And most people don't play it right either, but it, it's, it's there. And I was doing that. And I was going, wow, this is cool. So it's not an A minor seven. It's actually a C with an open E on top. Uh, and I'm mumbling around. <clears throat> I hear Linda pitter pattering down the hall. And she goes, Oh, John, that's beautiful. What is it? And I said, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out. And I got a couple of uh, verses, but um, this bridge thing is, and she goes, I know it's eerie beautiful i said well thanks i'm glad you like it do you want to make some tea or something she goes no i'm going back to bed i just wanted to tell you if you know when you finish it i'll record it Oh, huh. <laughs> so, of course i had to finish had to finish by morning <laughs> and she made a brilliant record of it And people keep recording. It's amazing. Glen Campbell had a country hit with it and they played that bridge twice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Put an
3: instrumental in between. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful song. Beautiful song.
3: Well, believe me, it's the only time anyone ever took a song of mine and made it longer than it already was. (laughs) That's funny. Um, I was being interviewed once at this house, my house in 24, 24 Nichols Canyon, and and Zvon was up there, and he's getting more and more impatient because we want to go eat, and I'm... You know, I'm on an interview, and also we're we're like competitive brothers. If it had been him being interviewed, when I wanted to go eat, I would have been pissed off too. (laughs) So I'm not I'm not putting anything on him, but he's pacing around. He's outside by my pool smoking because I wouldn't let anyone smoke cigarettes in my new house. (laughs) Right, and he kept walking back over to the screen and going finished. (laughs) Uh, So finally, this girl interviewing me says, uh, "So what's your favorite song of yours?" I went, "Oh, fuck." Uh, um, hey Zevon, I said, "What's my favorite song?" I want. Like, simple man, simple dream. He said, "Okay, <laughs> good choice, thanks." Uh, it's a simple man, simple dream. Why I go like, oh, fuck. <laughs> hey Zevon, why
1: He says, "Because it's short."
3: <laughs> the only song I've ever written under two minutes.
1: Oh wow!
0: Wow, <laughs> that's your stay.
1: yeah (laughs) well my final question for you is is similar to what's your favorite song but not quite my twist on that question is uh what's a song of yours that maybe you know you've had all these all these hits you've written songs that have become practically standards what's a song of yours or maybe a couple songs of yours that um, whether they be more recent or all the way back to the early days that maybe haven't gotten a lot of attention that you really feel like, man, I feel like that one or, or those couple songs are just absolute monsters. And I, I don't know why, maybe they haven't gotten the attention that some of the others have. Uh,
3: downtown before the war. Yeah. Mm. And I, th- I think um, something in the dark is a really good song too. I don't think we quite, got it i don't i don't think we should have made like a great bb king record out of it we just didn't quite get there with it so it's sort of settled for it's a, it's a good solid kind of r&b track uh,
1: and it's got these
3: beautiful billy child string parts on it but um uh, i wish i had that to do. maybe i'll do that again sometime with with uh i don't know i feel like i need like west love and his gang or something to really wow. pull it. <laughs> yeah yeah that was i I love downtown before the war I think uh I told you I think I'll be here at closing time is an important song yeah, yeah. i hope- I hope somebody cuts it so that more people hear it than have just heard my two records yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm. i um I said that was my last question, but I lied. I do have one more question when you put together the natural history record, which came out in 2011, you know, that we, I mentioned it at the top because you put I'll be here at closing time um, on that record. But, you know, you obviously had also a lot of the songs we've talked about on that record, Faithless Love, Mm -hmm. You're Only Lonely, New Kid in Town, Best of My Love. Um, And a lot of them are kind of a new twist, you know, on, on some, a little bit of a different take, you know, your own stamp on your own songs. How did you kind of decide what songs to do for that record?
3: well you know we were going to do two we were going to do natural history part one and two and part one was going to be all the ballads and then part two was going to be the, how long and trouble in paradise and and uh Heartache tonight and all the up-tempo stuff and we just when we finished the first one uh some of the biggest interest in that was in japan and, and they wanted two bonus tracks hmm. And so I got. Uh, we went in really quickly and did uh, "How Long" and "Heartache Tonight." But my and my heart. I think they're the weakest things on that record because we weren't we weren't really set up for that kind of a band record. It was going to be a, a little five piece group of guys that I had in Nashville. There, yeah. Most everything on Natural History is just me and one other guy, or me and two other guys, and very low key and. my voice wasn't particularly strong. I really had trouble with my voice in Nashville. There's allergies coming and going all the time. Yeah. But you know, you just keep making music and sometimes your intentions and the quality of the music and last, but certainly not least your team and the amount of money and effort they're willing to put in to sell it. Sometimes the stars all align and, and you get, and a great song a great performance of a great song becomes a big hit, but it's, there's just nothing that's necessarily true about any of those things.
5: Hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, Um, you know, when people always, you know, people are always asking a question that has in some way or another, they want you to answer with a solution. You know, why are you successful? Why are the songs successful? How are they successful? What are the ingredients? And I always have to say, you know, you know, I tell them the usual stuff that everybody says, but I always have to emphasize that there's an enormous factor of luck involved in time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what would have become of any of us. And I mean, my circle of friends and Glenn and Don and Jackson and Zevon and Waddy and Nicolette and Bonnie and Linda and Lowell. And I don't know what would have. I don't know what the result of our music making would have been had we not all known each other. And some of us really been just a few blocks away from each other or even in the same houses at the same time. Yeah. Mm. And, and also this year of university at the Troubadour, you have to realize that before Glenn and I got paid a dime for playing anywhere, we played hoot nights at the Troubadour. We played Monday night, which was the open mic night. And then during the week, we'd just come every night because the girls would feed us hamburgers, and we were broken. <laughs> and we, and that year, 69 and 70, my God, we saw Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Laura Nero, Elton John, uh, Rick Nelson, from CSN. Um, just every, every great songwriter that had a real James. Yeah. Uh, fabulous Bonnie just fabulous songwriters week after week so that was like that was our postgraduate music work was just going in there every night listening listening to these fabulous songwriters and sort of seeing what it was they did right and didn't do right and what could have been stronger and what was absolutely arresting and fabulous and demanded your attention and it was just a it was a wonderful place to be and we I think Lynn and I spent
1: Most nights of a year, there.
0: Wow, amazing. You know, I,
1: I think that a mistake that a lot of people make who maybe are aspiring songwriters is they want to go try to find an inroads to people who are already established and successful. And these real songwriting communities form with people who are all, you know, you guys weren't stars at that point, you were all just people struggling and making it happen, and you came up together and i think that the best thing for people who want to be songwriters to do is find people who are at your level who are fabulously talented and and come up together don't try to break into something that's already established
3: that's exactly right because none of us had any real and we didn't even know any famous people except for david crosby and john sebastian who were both like uncles for glenn and i yeah i mean they were i met john When I was still playing with Norman Greenbaum, but uh, I met um, Cross after Glenn and I were together, and he used to do—he was our greatest patron and champion. He took Jackson Brown and I to a Jim McGuinn session one night because he thought McGuinn needed some good songs, and he was just basically taking us around and saying, "Hey, these are the new guys." Wow. These guys right here, these two guys with me, this is the next class of great songwriters. So he took us to this session of McGuinn's, uh, ostensibly to play songs for McGuinn. We never got the chance. McGuinn just talked about himself for three hours and, and how much the birds <laughs> needed him and why he couldn't leave the birds because they didn't have anything yeah. without him. And Finally, we just got tired. And this is while you're still drinking. I, I hear he's a great guy now.
1: Yeah. But yeah, he was...
3: Yeah. Full of himself and full of shit. Then, and <laughs> after about two hours, Jackson and I just looked at each other like, "What the fuck are we doing here?" So we walk out in the hall, kind of dejected. And Cross goes, "Man, I'm sorry. You know, the guy's an asshole. I I thought he would listen to some of these songs. I'm sorry, I tried." And I mean, hey, Cross, you're, the, you're you're the man. Thanks, we appreciate it. Yeah. So we go out and sit down in the hall on the stairs at the old Columbia Studios. And we are just sitting there looking at each other like you know, looking at our feet. And we, we, oh, and we had just seen him like sort of carry Sly Stone out of the studio. He's, he's imbibed a little too much. And uh, so there was a guy on each side of him kind of helping him down the stairs. And about the time Jackson and I are coming out of the McGuinn session, so we sit down on the stairs and we're just sitting there for a minute and we're looking. And we realize right at our feet there's a big paper bundle. Well, guess what's in it? Hmm. Flystone's Coke. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> They've already driven away. So Jackson and I just look at each other like, Well <laughs> Okay, we didn't get any songs tonight, but we got a little blow.
1: <laughs> we got my
3: motorcycle and <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I imagine Strange it was good stuff too.
3: <laughs> oh, are you kidding? Have much better stuff and much more than we were ever able to buy. <laughs>
1: wow. JD, thank you so much for uh, your time and for telling us these great stories and giving us your thoughts about your career. This has really been an honor for us to talk with you.
3: Thanks very much. I really appreciate it, guys. It's been a fun conversation.
1: Thanks
0: for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe
1: to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at
0: songcraftshow.com.